welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast, presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at Exo Mountain Gear share the same purpose, to make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Well, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. This is episode number 203, and the topic today is suppressors for hunting. So we're joined by Zach from Thunderbeast Arms, and Thunderbeast makes, produces, and sells suppressors or silencers. Um, in my own personal quest to look at getting a suppressor or silencer, I just kept coming back to Thunderbeast, and we're not associated with them, but... It was a suppressor that I decided that I wanted for my personal needs, so I reached out to Zach, one of the owners of Thunderbeast, and thankfully he was willing to come on the podcast and not only tell us about his products, but really just inform us about suppressors in general, their uses for hunting, how to legally purchase one, what to look for when you're considering a suppressor, and so much more. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Before we dive into it, I wanted to give a shout out to Chad T 45 Chad, thank you for the review. We appreciate that feedback. We want to send you some Exo Mountain Gear and Hunt Backcountry podcast swag. So send us your shipping address to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And listeners, if you want to enter into these giveaways, it's really simple. We just want to hear from you. So you can leave us a review in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. If you can leave a review, that helps us tremendously. Or you can always contact us directly via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And let us know about your feedback, episode suggestions, topic suggestions, guest suggestions, or anything like that. If you have a listener question just about a topic on hunting, we can maybe tackle that on a Monday Minute as well. And speaking of Monday Minute, if you didn't catch the Monday Minute this past week, make sure you tune in next week. We have a lot of news coming. We're going to be giving away an Exo Mountain Gear pack next week, and you need to tune in to the Monday Minute episode to hear more about that. So make sure you hit subscribe get next week's Monday Minute, and get entered into that giveaway for an Exo Mountain Gear pack. All right, here's this conversation with Zach from Thunderbeast Arms. All right, well, Zach, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Thanks for joining us, man. Thank you. So you are from Thunderbeast Arms. Uh, we're going to talk about suppressors today. Before we get into that, just uh, with some personal background, anything you feel like sharing that might be relevant, just to let listeners get to know you a bit. Um, sure. So my sort of gun background is I grew up hunting uh, in Wisconsin, um, and then I moved to Colorado when I was, what, 22 or something like that um, for an engineering job. And then I got pretty heavily into competitive long-range shooting. Um, and then I met Ray, Shane, um, Ray and Shane, the two other partners, and we decided to make suppressors for long range shooting. That's, that's, that's sort of the short, um, summary of how we got here. Yeah. So the three of you started Thunder Beast and when was that? Uh, we decided to do it in 2007 and I think our FFL and SOT finally came through in early 2018. I'm sorry, 2008. 2008, right. So you, you mentioned in there, you're an engineer, um, what was, did anybody have experience building suppressors or like, was it 
figuring this thing out as we go, what were those early days like, you know, in terms of making that decision to jump in and what, what did you bring to the table that made you think, yeah, let's do this? Well, um, my background isn't mechanical, it's electrical. So that oh, really okay. wasn't that relevant <laughs> to the problem. Yeah. Um, but Shane had been a machinist in the Navy. He retired from the Navy, uh, a few years after we, um, started the company, he retired full time, uh, after 23 years in the Navy and he was a machinist. So he had a lot of experience with that. And all three of us had shot um, suppressors made by a company called Jet in Texas back in the probably early 2000s. And um, we thought we could do better. So that was our background. Yeah, that's cool. That's much like the the origins of EXO and the PACs. It's like using PACs but figuring out, hey, I think we can do something better. You know, there's like a there's a new idea, a new design, a new philosophy that it's not out there. So let's bring it to market. So I appreciate that. That's cool. Yeah, I mean... One thing is back then, um, I'm talking like the 2003 to 2000, probably, well, I guess seven time frame, yeah. Um, mo- a lot of suppressors on the market would actually harm the accuracy of your rifle, um, <laughs> which was really problematic. If you have a rifle that shoots, you know, half or a quarter minute, and all of a sudden you screw on a can, every time you put it on, you know, your zero is different and your group opens up, that's a real problem. And back then, there was probably there were one or two suppressors on the market that that didn't harm accuracy, but the rest of them kind of did. So um, we thought we could make, and, and the dominant one at the time was Jet, like I said, um, and we thought we could make one that was either lighter or quieter. So we that was our first design goal. Yeah, and in those days, I mean, was a lot of the, I'm assuming the origins of suppressors in general. I know if you go way back in time, there was there was guys making stuff and all that. But in terms of commercial presence of suppressors in the market, was it still mostly military and kind of fringe? Or you know, I, I think it's grown over the last you know tw- what twelve years, thirteen years at this point. But what was the market like back then? So back then, let's see. So there had always been, and I'm not a huge expert on the NFA market you know, prior to about, um, maybe 2005. And I wouldn't even say I'm an expert in 2005, but, um, there was always the NFA collectors, you know, back from 86 or whenever the NFA went through, there was always the, uh, and I, I don't mean the NFA, I mean the Hughes amendment or whatever that basically made it so you couldn't buy machine guns. There's always been NFA collectors. Um, so in that sense, there was kind of a niche market for them. But I think really what happened is sometime around the expiration of the original assault weapons ban, and I don't think it was correlated to that. I just think like shooting sports were growing mm-hmm. and um, like sort of I'm in my mid 40s now and people of my generation or, you know, dudes of my generation were really getting into uh, firearms, really like ARs or pistols or, you know, a- action shooting. Yeah. Um, USPSA and IDPA and three gun and even cowboy, although that, you know, that's a different crew, but all those things were really on the ascendancy. Um, and, uh, I think definitely there was a huge acceleration in the market from probably 2000 to 2010. I mean, and, and sometime in that range towards the end, I think we started this sort of like geometric growth in the sales of suppressors across the board, you know, and we only special, I mean, we primarily specialize in precision long range rifle silencers. 
And that's really what we've put our effort behind for the last like 12 years. Um, and that market in particular has really taken off because, you know, what happened is um, kind of before Three Gun Nation happened, and this is a lot of like sort of uh, shooting competition geek stuff, I guess. But mm-hmm. like, um, you know, before Three Gun Nation, you know, um, even before then, Three Gun was growing rapidly. And then a lot of these guys, they're like, okay, we need to, or we want to shoot long range now. So a lot of us transitioned over to long range. And then, you know, the long range shooting competition scene has just exploded over the last, I don't know, about eight years. Um, and then along with that, um, silencers are sort of uh, an obvious accessory because there's so many benefits. And I think kind of in parallel with, with increasing crossover is you have the long range hunting crowd. Um, and when you get in, as soon as you're exposed to a silencer, you're like, man, it sure would be nice to hunt with this. So now you have hunters going after them. So there's definitely been an acceleration over the last 20 years of sounds of knowledge, uh, the knowledge that people have that silencers that they can get a silencer, albeit with a bunch of paperwork and the benefits of them. Yeah, and we're we're gonna talk about that. That pretty much parallels my story. Is I've a had the experience to shoot with one. I thought, well, I have to make this happen, and then uh, you know just thought all of the reasons in the field. And as we'll discuss here in a bit, it's much more than just reducing noise. There's some other benefits to it in that. But um, just at a super high level for guys that are new, and again, we don't have to go full engineer here, but just so there's some base understanding because it I think it helps inform. Uh, suppressor selection as you're looking at different designs and things, but how do suppressors work in general? Yeah. So just the basic physical setup of it is you have, you you take a regular hunting rifle or whatever, you have threads on the muzzle, either from the factory or you have your gunsmith cut threads and the suppressor will either screw directly onto those threads or some designs have like uh, an adapter of some sort, like a muzzle breaker, a flash hider that you'd leave on the rifle, and then the suppressor would connect to that. Sometimes with like a ta- like a a clicky type attachment, and sometimes it would just screw on that. Um, so that's like mechanically how it connects. So pretty much any, almost any firearm, with some exceptions, can take a silencer as long as it has muzzle threads. Um, a silencer is not like rifle specific. Um, typically if you have a 30 caliber rifle rated suppressor, you can probably shoot it on almost anything, you know, below 30 caliber for a rifle. So if you got a 30 caliber, for example, we have the 30 caliber ultra nine, you can shoot that on everything from, you know, 300 Norma down to two, two, three or 17 HMR or even 22. If you don't mind getting gunked up with lead and, and uh, wax a little bit. Um, so now how they work is basically as the bullet exits, you have a plume of gas that comes out, and that's the big boom that happens when you shoot, right? So what the silencer does, it's sort of like a car muffler. It has a series, almost all of them have a series of baffles or chambers or something of that sort that sort of progressively captures that blast wave and holds it in temporarily. So what you have is instead of having one big gas explosion, you have this this multi-chambered or like staged uh, device that sort of holds the gas for a little while and then it releases it out the front again, but it does it in a slower manner. So as you slow down gas, the pressure goes down and it gets quieter. So 
um, instead of like if you shoot a th- like a 308 without a suppressor, you get a big boom. If you shoot a 308 with a suppressor, you get and I'm not going to try to like replicate the sound, but <laughs> like 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 the closest analogy I can have is disconnecting the air hose. You know, so yeah, that's that is a good way to put it. Um, so in terms of volume, you know, there's, there, there, I guess some folks who haven't shot with a suppressor, they might be thinking of Hollywood and then the term silencers where it's truly like nothing. Um, and I know you can talking subsonic loads, you can get down pretty stinking quiet, but let's keep it in the context of, um, say a 30 cal six, five, seven millimeters, something like that, that someone would actually be hunting with what type of decibel range are we talking about on average is it hearing safe is wearing ear protection still recommended um just kind of talk us through that to for hunters specifically to understand what they're getting in terms of sound from a suppressor sure so you know and with decibels we can get into a whole bunch of math and like logs and all this stuff and it gets fairly complicated but i'm going to try to break it down to stuff that we can kind of like intuitively understand um we can all imagine how loud like an unsuppressed 308 or a 30-06 or 300 wind mag is, and that decibel rating is about 165 to 170 decibels. Um, and uh, if you have a muzzle brake on there, it's going to be even higher. So with a muzzle brake, it's easy to get one of these rifles up to the 175 dB range, which is super loud. Um I mean, that's going to do here. Every time you do that, you get hearing damage, period. There's no question about it. Just a question of how many of those you crank off before you need hearing aids. Um, so that's not recommended. Um, now, it, it, as we go down the decibel range, um, an unsuppressed supersonic 22 is about 150 to 155. And then quiet 22 ammo is probably in the 140 range, maybe high 140s. And this is all unsuppressed for those 22 numbers. This is all unsuppressed, exactly. I'm just trying to give us, like, baselines. And the thing to understand about decibels is it has to do with sound intensity, like like a sound pressure wave, and then you take the log of the kilopascals and all this sort of stuff. But um, it's a log scale. So I think it's every 6 dB you have twice the sound energy. So you think about what's actually going into your ears. I mean, 10 dB is essentially every 10 dB, if I remember correctly, is 10 times the sound pressure uh, level. So the amount of energy going into your head decreases at like a log basis as the decibels go down or up. So and the way they did it is they tried to make it at like regular conversational levels. 1 dB was supposed to be about the minimum difference that a person with good hearing could tell the difference of. So how this relates to shooting is that for suppressed shots, what we found is that 1.5 to 3 dB, if you shoot shot to shot, is about the the smallest difference that you can actually tell with a suppressed rifle. Um, So where do we get with suppression? Um, There's two ways to meter. And metering, like getting a decibel rating on a on a, on a gun system or a suppressor system, or whatever, is fairly expensive and difficult. But there's basically two places that we can meter. We can meter at the muzzle, and the mil spec on that is one meter to the left or right, or we can meter at the shooter's ear. For most people, metering at the shooter's ear makes more sense. Um, but I'm going to be giving you a combination of, of numbers, uh, front or shooter's ear, just so we're 
clear on, on what's going on here. Mm-hmm. But um, we're talking like at the muzzle, which is where that 165 to 175 un- unsuppressed came from. A good um, centerfire suppressor can get that down to the mid 130s at the muzzle. So we're talking like 133 to 138. And, and you mentioned before an unsuppressed 22 is 140-ish. So we're talking quieter than that. Yeah, an unsuppressed, like subsonic. Well, an, an unsuppressed subsonic twenty-two will probably be in the mid one forties. Okay. So you're talking, okay. I mean, in like if you're out in the open and kind of speaking really like approximately, you can make your, uh, you know, seven ultra mag sound like a twenty-two. That's the rough explanation. If you want to get into the numbers, technically it's a little bit quieter. Right. But I think it's a helpful yeah. comparison because I'm sure most folks have shot a twenty-two without hearing protection. Would be my assumption. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's definitely not. So, so with regard to hearing safe, look, we don't advertise our stuff as hearing safe um, because what that means is really hard to define. Like OSHA has an impulse uh, exposure rating. And I think for like workplaces and I think their limit is 140. 140 is loud. I mean, 140, most people, it'll, it'll leave their ears ringing a little bit for a couple minutes. Not like ringing bad, but you can hear it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 130 is a much better threshold, but if you're exposed to 130 decibels on a constant basis, I mean, that's still loud. Right. Um, and, and if you look online, there are like, you know, tables like, oh, being right next to a jet engine is 170, and you can go down from there. Like a quiet room is like 50 or 60 or whatever, right? Um, so you can figure out where you're at. But I mean, the, we don't advertise them as hearing safe because the bottom line is like you're he- there's no way to regenerate hearing. So once it's gone, it's gone. And anything that's loud, if you're exposed to it long enough, will eventually reduce your hearing. Obviously, the louder it is, the shorter exposure you get. So yeah, but and I'm I'm ballparking figures, so um, the engineer and you will probably get very mad at this. But let's say we're at 135 compared to 165. Talking center fire. Suppressed versus unsuppressed, just rough numbers. And what you said earlier about decibels being nonlinear, and it's basically like that hockey stick scale where a small increment is a significant increase. I mean, you're talking 30 decibels, roughly, um, of suppression, which is significant for sure. And plenty, I mean, as much as we talk about hunting with ear protection, as much as I would love to always have hearing protection in while hunting or for a shot, there's there's certain instances where that's tough to do, you forget to do, et cetera. And I myself, like plenty of others, I'm sure have had probably too many shots, you know, without hearing protection. So again, not necessarily saying it's hearing safe, but it's a, it's a significant improvement, I'd say. Well, yeah. I mean, you look at what the, like the best earplugs that you can buy are like NRR 33, which is the noise reduction rating, which is, they say it reduces the effective by 33 decibels. So if you look at the best Centerfire suppressors, they're over that. So in that perspective, yeah, you're just as good to shoot with a can as you are to shoot with good ear good ear protection. I mean, that said, if you shot with ear protection and a can, it's even better. Sure. But, I mean, you got to have a limit somewhere. So Yeah, got it. So if folks start to go look at suppressors, um, we'll kind of dissect some of the different things to consider. But one right off the bat is materials. Um, you know, you see things like titanium, which you guys use in certain instances. 
um, different um, stainlesses. And then what's that one? Is it Sterilite? What's that other material that pops up? Very There's, uh, the other two main ones are Incanel and Stellite. Stellite. That's what it is. So can you kind of talk about what those are at a high level? Maybe some of the pros and cons about different materials used in suppressors? Sure. I mean, there's one other one, which is aluminum, but it's primarily not used on centerfire suppressors because uh, right. it's, it's not that strong. But, I mean, in Europe they use them because they can just throw away their suppressor and buy a new one for, like, over-the-counter for 50 bucks, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but in the U.S., we tend – you know, with the laws, we're kind of married to the suppressors. So people in the U.S. want the best suppressor, which is great for us because we can make a good suppressor. But, um, yeah, for materials, um, we make mostly Thai suppressors because – it's strong, it's lightweight, and it's really, really well suited to a precision rifle application. Um, if you think about um, your precision rifle, whenever you put something on the muzzle, be it a brake or a suppressor, you're going to add weight that might distribute your har- harmonics a little bit. There also is actually what like static sag of the barrel due to any weight on there. In some cases, it's so small you can't notice it. But it is advantageous to have a minimal point of impact shift. And by that, I mean the zero that you have with the can off versus the zero, the zero you have with the can on. And if you can keep that, you know, uh, minimized, I, ideal is your zero is the same. And what we found is that for most, like, you know, well-built, free-floated guns, so, um, the difference is almost directly related always to the barrel stiffness. So the stiffer the barrel the less deviation you'll have from suppressed to unsuppressed. And um, so if you have a long pencil barrel, you might have, you know, a minute and a half of shift. Now, if everything is made right, you'll have one zero that always comes back whenever you put the can on, and you'll have one zero whenever the can's off. So if you do have to take a shot without the can, you can just look at your data and say, oh, I I dial out one and a half minutes, and then I'm back on my unsuppressed zero. That's, That's fine. It's a predictable shift. And, you know, when, like I was referring to from history, um, a lot of old cans, man, every time you'd screw them on or put them on with whatever mount they had, your shift wasn't consistent. So you'd literally have no idea where your zero was. I mean, it might be in like a cloud of like three inches, but that's not that helpful. Um, <laughs> so ours will always go back to the exact same point of aim once you put the can back on. And like what I found personally is I have a 24 inch like heavy Palma contour that one has zero shift it's the exact same with the can on or off and as you get into longer barrels and thinner contours you basically get a little bit more in an ideal rifle you get a little bit more downward shift with the can on um, but it's usually a minute or less yeah it makes sense I mean Anything on that barrel is changing harmonics, and as you said, even to some level, some sort of like static uh, drop, if you will. So titanium sure. is something you guys use for weight, and you also said for precision. The potential downside to titanium is, from my understanding, heat, correct? It is to some extent, and our current line of products, we tell people that this thing will last basically forever if you keep it under 800 degrees. So titanium is a, is a fairly complex metal. Um, and I'm not a metallurgist by any means, but my understanding from discussing this with our engineering staff is basically that starting at 800 degrees, you start to get what they call hydrogen embrittlement where the, the, the titanium essentially starts to absorb gas from the surrounding area. And then as hydrogen goes into the titanium, it makes the material a little bit more brittle. 
Now, depending on how you've designed the parts, that embrittlement can either cause a long-term problem or it cannot. And then you get into um, the ultimate like melting temperature, which is, you know, if you're going to build a machine gun, you don't make it out of titanium, at least the parts that get hot, because there is it does have a melting temperature temperature and that's where like the Inconel and the stellite come in i mean they are probably the the most durable high temperature materials out there but um right now we're actually in an r&d phase where we're trying to figure out if we can make a full auto can out of titanium and still give it like a long-term rating um you know stay tuned for that but uh to be safe with it for now titanium is generally considered a lower temperature metal um but it is quite strong so you know we can make a super light, like like our what we consider the full size 30 caliber suppressor is nine inches long. Our unit is under 12 ounces, which is super light. Um, and 10 years ago, you know, people thought a light nine inch can was 20 ounces. So that's a big difference. Uh, yeah. When you get into like Stellite and Inconel are mainly used for like military or real full auto applications. In steel is kind of a, a midpoint. We use 17.4 in, in, a, in, a, in a number of our cans, and it has um, good – it's very strong. It's good at high temperature. It's hard. It has um, good high temp characteristics, but the downside is that it's super heavy. Being titanium, um, it's light, very strong has still good heat resistance. You talked about 800 degrees. Like, what does that equate to for the average guy listening to this who has no idea how hot a suppressor is going to get? Uh, luckily, I think for, for us and the most of our use case for listeners is going to be hunting. We're not full auto by any means. Um, ideally, we're at one shot in a hunting scenario. Um, even for sighting in, like most guys are letting barrels be relatively cool, things like that. So there, I don't see any issue with titanium um, for that application, but I don't know. I also know that there's, um, other uses of your suppressors outside of hunting for competition for long range where there's stages where there is a higher number of rounds. So like if you can equate 800 degrees and I know this isn't perfect, but like what type of rate of fire are you talking about? Um, so on like a 16 inch AR 10, 308 semi-auto, you would have to basically shoot two 20 round mags at like a full auto rate. So like as quickly as you can pull the trigger, as fast as you can change mags to get it up to 800 degrees. Okay. So that's significant for our, for our uses. Yeah. I mean, that's 40 rounds in literally as quickly as you can pull the trigger with no cooling time whatsoever. So we've done some experiment. Look, we rate our stuff super conservatively, right? So we don't want to say it'll do something if we're not sure it won't do that thing forever. Um, but we've tried to overheat like an Ultra 7 or Ultra 9 on a regular AR-15 shooting like at a regular pace where you actually aim at stuff. And it is almost impossible to overheat those things. So I think that um, people people g- generally kind of overestimate the volume that they shoot or, 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 or can shoot. Um, and uh, on the flip side, um, I think – there are full auto rated quote unquote full auto rated suppressors that might not be um, if you actually got down to it and put it on a belt fed. But look, for most people who target shoot, it's going to be impossible to overheat one of these things. I mean, to get a can to 800 degrees, 
you would you would you would burn your hand on your barrel. And no person with a precision rifle really wants to get their barrel that hot because we know that throat erosion happens at an accelerated pace when you get your barrel that hot. So we all try to avoid that. You talked previously about accuracy and how a lot of that is the suppressor's interface um, with the barrel, for lack of better terms, and weight and everything else. Accuracy and repeatability, you touched on repeatability as well in terms of are you shooting with and without that suppressor? And is that change repeatable? Um, to be frank, like as I was researching suppressors for my own needs, uh, talking to it with a lot of folks, repeatability is something that came up a lot with your suppressors specifically. Um, not asking for any like trade secrets or anything, but what can you share about what you guys have done to help make sure that above all, um, not only do you have a light suppressor that's strong and everything else, but that it's very repeatable um, on and off. Because even for my own personal use, um, I'm planning on shooting with that suppressor the vast majority of the time. It's also going to change rifles and go from this rifle to that rifle. So there will be plenty of instances where I'm taking that um, suppressor on and off of that rifle, maybe to shoot it on another host. So what what is what is there that you can tell us about repeatability with suppressors? Yeah. Um, repeatability is probably 99% the mount. And by that, I mean the interface between the barrel and the can. So if you have a direct thread suppressor, and by that, I mean, you have muzzle threads on your rifle and you, your suppressor has female threads that match and you just screw the thing on until it stops. And then you fire. If that is set up right, the whole system should be repeatable. Um, and it's really that simple. And there are ways you can screw it up, like if the threads aren't made right on the barrel or aren't cut right and aren't aligned right and the, and the shoulder isn't square, that's going to be a problem. You basically need a solid physical interface. And we have thread specifications on our website, like, like a thread print on our website, um, that just shows like mechanically what it has to be and what the setup is. And any competent CNC machinist should be able to execute those, those plans. And that's not specific to us. That's, you know, we stole that from the engineering hand or from the machinery handbook. Um, so in, in some sense, it's just, if, if you do it right and have a, an interface that's solid, it's not going to be a problem. That said, I mean, there's ways to, to like do the work wrong. And then there are, designs that sort of have inherent problems that make them unlikely to be repeatable. Like, um, anytime you have a mount that has, you know, someone, some people might call it like a quick disconnect mount or a QD mount or like, uh, um, you know, like, like, like these clicky mounts, anything that has moving parts is more likely to have a repeatability problem because for example, I mean, a well-known and this is pretty widely used in the industry for like, um, assault rifle mounts, so, so to speak, is they'll have like an Acme thread on the brake, which is a, a really coarse thread. And then they'll have a little detent on the outside of the brake and a detent plunger on the, on the can. And then as you screw it on, the detent goes into a little, a little, uh, or the plunger goes into a hole and eventually it stops, right? Well, the problem is, is that it's likely to be not quite fully tight when it gets to the detent. Right. So it'll either be in this detent or the next detent, but it really wants to be somewhere in the middle. So and what you'll have is then the thing will be loose and that can it'll be loose a tiny bit. And if there's any, if there's ever any motion between the can and the barrel, you're going to have a, repeat, a repeatability problem and you're going to have an accuracy problem. And you guys not only 
do direct thread, that's an option, but then you also have um, a brake mount. Uh, can you talk about maybe the pros and cons of that or what as well, like what specifically you guys were going for when you designed that mount? Sure, yeah, we actually have, I guess technically we have th three mounts now besides direct thread and two of them are almost the same, just one's bigger. So we have direct thread, which is fine. And the way this works is you have threads. They're usually 24 pitch threads and on a 30 cal, the standard is five eighths, 24. Um, right behind the threads on your muzzle, you have a, a, a 90 degree shoulder. You screw on the can until the back of the can abuts up the 90 degree shoulder, tighten it down a little bit. And there you go. Um, the downside is, is there's not a lot of friction between the 90 degree shoulder on your barrel and the back of the can. Now, if we go to what we call our CB, and that's what we call the compact brake, and the only reason we call it that is we used to have one called the brake attach, which, and this is the smaller version of that. So this is a muzzle brake or a flash hider, and behind the flat, the muzzle brake ports, we have an external thread, which I think is 0.95 by 24, so the diameter of the thread is bigger. Um, the length of the thread is about the same. And then behind that, we have a conical shoulder, which is a like a tapered shoulder, and as you screw the can onto that, so you have more thread surface area because the threads are bigger in diameter. And then you have this, this tapered lockup. Tapered lockups are always tighter and have more friction um, than a square, a 90-degree lockup, unlike direct thread. In a lot of machine tools, like at any machine shop, so many tools lock up as you install them on stuff with a tapered shoulder system. Um, and that's why, because the lockup is super tight. So what you'll get is you'll get um, – there's more retention on there because there's more friction, and the whole thing is stiffer sort of like longitudinally because there's more surface area contacting on that shoulder area. Um, so then we make a bigger version of that called the, the BA, and that's basically for a 338 suppressor. And then last year we, came, we, we, we finally came out with what we call the SR. That's the secondary re retention mount. And the point behind that is to keep the advantages of the CB mount with a tapered shoulder and going over a brake, but to add a secondary retention system um, for military applications where you might be in a helicopter rattling around for like 10 hours and then you have to go shoot and you don't want your can to fall off. Um, it's a requirement for a lot of things. And honestly, it's overkill for almost all re regular users because we're all going to, you know, if we get up to our the place where we're going to be for a while, you know, we we can all give our can a little twist to make sure it's still tight. But the secondary retention is kind of a breakthrough for us because it's a quick disconnect style mount that doesn't have the downsides of like the clicky mounts. So it's as repeatable as the, as the CB mount. But really for almost everybody, we recommend just the CB mount because it's, it's relatively cheap. Um, the muzzle brakes or flash hiders act as an adapter between the muzzle threads and your suppressor because, okay, look, if you have a 308 and a 7 rem mag, they can both be threaded 5.8s. But as soon as you throw like a 223 into the mix or maybe like a 6.5 Grendel with 916 threads, 223 is going to be one half. You're going to need some way to adapt the thread pattern to match your suppressor. And, and, and you can just buy a CB brake with the right threads on it and throw that on there. Let's talk about a little bit about the impacts beyond sound reduction of shooting with a suppressor um you know one thing that i was curious about when i was completely new to this world and i'm still learning a lot myself but i was curious what a suppressor did to um speed and velocity uh and was surprised to hear that in many cases it actually increases that a bit not slows it down 
Um, that was just my uninformed assumption of, oh, you're capturing gas and all that. I would assume a bullet would slow. But talk a little bit about that and what is typical to see. Is it much of a change? Is it a super minor change? How does a suppressor affect velocity for these centerfire rifle cartridges? Yeah, I mean, coming from whenever you talk to, let me just put it, put it this way, the myths about, about suppressors in the general public have little relation to reality or they're 50 years out of date. Um, and you know, a lot of people think that if you shoot a suppressor, you have to shoot subsonic ammo false. I mean, for long range, obviously we're all shooting full power ammo because we need the ballistics of it, you know, and one other, um, recurring myth is that it slows down the bullet. And where that comes from is back in like the Vietnam era and before, especially for pistol suppressors, they would actually put rubber wipes in those things. So there was like a physical contact between your bullet and the and the rubber wipe as it went through. Now that was good in the sense that it captured a lot of additional sound because there was like zero clearance, right? But the downside is, is accuracy went to hell, um, and it didn't last very long. So for centerfire suppressors, um, the 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 internal bore of the suppressor, like the aperture the bullet passes through, is typically about fifty or sixty thousandths larger diameter than than the bullet diameter. So there's plenty of clearance in there. And that gas plume comes out at like a 45 degree angle, not um, like a straight angle. So you can still catch that gas. Um, so as a result, as the bullet fires, um, if it was just atmosphere, like shooting unsuppressed, the gas plume goes out and then the bullet uh, essentially has a lower pressure uh, range, I guess, behind it, right? In a suppressor, as the bullet goes through, the suppressor is still pressurized. So even though it's a lot less pressure than the pressure in the in the barrel, there's still positive pressure behind that bullet. So as a result, um, you typically gain a very small amount of velocity. So, and by very small, I mean between like zero and like twenty feet per second. So for most, that's not uh, too extreme to offset, you know ballistics too much really um i mean we already talked about repeatability and yes there's potential for point of impact shifts it sounds like as as much as anything if there's like say this downward trend of the weight it's being a little bit offset by velocity which maybe helps keep things more similar just because all the all the variances we're talking about are pretty minimal yeah i mean inside of 500 yards look you never want your zero to change and if your zero has shifted you have to take you you have to take a, a account of that. There's no way around it. I mean, if you're like a, like an inch, or I'm, I'm sorry, if your zero has shifted a minute and a half low, you have to correct that out. Because um, at 500 yards, you're talking like close to eight inches or whatever. So you need to take that out. But for uh, um, the velocity, I mean, yeah, look, under 500 yards, you can probably switch, you can probably switch brands of ammo and still make hits reasonably well out to 500 as long as your zero hasn't changed. And 20 feet per second, I mean, if the temperature goes up 15 degrees, your ammo might be plus or minus 20 feet per second anyway. So this is all stuff that either you're tracking, like, the temperature and the environmentals and, uh, you know, all this stuff down to, like, the closest 5 degrees, or you're just saying, hey, you know what, we're about 2,800 feet per second. Um, my data's for that, and that's good enough, you know. Right. The impacts of a suppressor on recoil um there's benefit there there's a lot of guys these days 
um, shooting brakes to help not only manage the recoil impulse in terms of feel, but in terms of spotting impacts, being prepared for follow-up shots, again, in a hunting scenario. So the suppressor has some advantages there. So just dive into that a little bit as well. Yeah, sure. So um, I'll go into the physics of it later, but basically if you give someone a suppressed like 6.5 Creed and they shoot it, it and they sh- shoot it, they're probably going to look back at you and say, that feels like a 22, <laughs> which is true. And it's totally awesome to shoot like a real cartridge and have it feel like a 22. Um, and the reason that happens is, is that that recoil happens, be- you know, partly because of the bullet going out, but partly because the gas going out. And what a muzzle brake does is it basically takes that gas going out and captures the momentum and pulls the gun forward. Well, the can does the exact same thing. The can is going to capture all the momentum of the gas and pull your rifle forward a little bit, which counteracts the recoil impulse of the gun from just the bullet itself. Um, Now, on a suppressor, the gas does eventually have to go out the front, but it does it at such a slow rate compared to the rest of firing that really that doesn't have much of an effect. So the recoil reduction is quite large. Would you... Obviously, there's differences in brakes, brake design, and all that. But would you equate those to being similarly effective on most center fires, or one more effective than the other? So here's how I would characterize it: on calibers less than 300 Win Mag, I would say that most people will perceive it as with the suppressor as less recoil than a good brake. Um, on calibers 300 Win Mag and bigger, most people will say. There's no jolt, but there is a little bit of a push with the suppressor. Um, and that just gets in. At, at some point, you have so much mass in the bullet that you are going to have more of a pushback. Um, and if you get technical about it, I mean, the gas is still going out the front. It's just going slower. So, But, you know, like, big picture, most people will feel like it's as effective. And, like, one theory that I have, and I didn't make this up. I, I just heard about it somewhere 15 years ago, is that – a person can sort of like psychologically absorb a certain amount of recoil and blast. And I mean those together because anyone who's shot like a braked 338 Lapua knows that just the muzzle blast coming back from the brake is almost like being hit in the face with a, like a, like a punching glove. Um, and if you can reduce the blast out, even if you have a little bit of push, it's almost as effective. So I think if you can reduce either or both of those a significant degree, you can shoot a lot more and have less of a degradation of your shooting ability. Um, and I think most people think you can shoot a lot more w- with the suppressor than without the suppressor. So I think just removing that that blast wave is a huge psychological effect in recoil. Yeah, I was, I'm not only uh, you know going down this road myself personally for my own needs, but honestly, part of the reason I'm doing it is to shoot more with my kids and as my kids are getting older and getting more to that age of um, being able to hunt for themselves and, and shoot center fire. It's a having shot myself suppressed weapons. I've been surprised by the recoil impulse. And then exactly what you said, that concussion uh, lack of concussion muzzle blast is significant. And so to me, there's a huge benefit um, as I'm getting my kids into that of being able to have them shoot suppressed. Cause I think it's going to allow them to do, um, more shooting and shoot calibers that they otherwise probably wouldn't um, or wouldn't feel as comfortable with. So it, it's a it's an impressive benefit for sure. Mm-hmm. What? How much? Um, again, in a hunting situation, how much benefit would you see for a suppressor in terms of animal reaction um, 
thinking of instances where you know you're you're hunting where there's a higher number of animals maybe there's this opportunity of you know you and a partner each having one or having a follow-up shot just in terms of do you think there's much validity to shooting with a suppressed weapon in a hunting situation and an animal's reaction to that noise you know i definitely do and i've had i get emails and and messages and texts or whatever from friends all the time was like, oh yeah, me and my buddies were shooting, you know, antelope or elk or deer or whatever. And man, we were able to get, you know, all three and none of them heard anything or knew what was happening. And granted, I mean, if a bullet does fly over, there's, there is flight noise of the bullet, you know? So if you're anybody who's ever shot a thousand yard match and been in the pits knows as the bullet flies over, that's pretty loud. So, you know, you can't get rid of the bullet noise, but, um, it's definitely a major factor. And I just like, like a week ago, one of my friends said, Hey, yeah, me and my buddy were able to get these two elk because, you know, they didn't know what was going on. And, um, another note, I mean, in, look, half the silencer market in the U S is just Texas alone. And in Texas, they kill a lot of hogs. Um, and I have a friend who's sort of like an industrial level, like hog destroyer, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not even, it's not his saying is it's not sport. It's just business. You know, it's just yeah. like, you need to go in, eradicate as many as, you, as many as you can before dawn and get rid of them, you know, put them in a pit with, with whatever. Um, and he says that having you know, a quiet weapon system is a huge advantage because he can, instead of you know, being able to get like a few, and he's a really good three-gun shooter, um, he can hit a lot of targets in sequence. But he said, you know, man, having a suppressed weapon system just is a game changer for how many that he can engage before they start to you know, split or whatever. Getting into suppressor selection, and I'm keeping this in the context of your products because that's what you know I've been making decisions on and looking at and weighing these questions myself, has Steve as well, but this obviously applies to other, um, other suppressor selection for hunting needs specifically. You touched on it earlier of being caliber specific. Um, for example, I'm going with a 30 caliber um, suppressor, shooting both 30 caliber rifles as well as like some 6.5s for myself. Steve is going with a 6.5 specific just because he has multiple 6.5s and he's staying in that direction. But there's also many suppressors on the market that are adaptable. Maybe they have interchangeable end caps, for example. Why why don't you guys go that route? Um, you know, because that is a difference I've noticed with your suppressors versus some, some of the others that yours are caliber specific, not interchangeable, if you will. Well, I mean, they're caliber specific up to the caliber they're rated for. So, I mean, like, for example, a, a 30 caliber Ultra 9. So just an overview of our products. Most of our sub 338 caliber, it's called the Ultra 5, 7, or 9. And the, and the number just refers to the length in inches. So the Ultra 5 is 5 inches long. The Ultra 7 is 7 inches long. The Ultra 9 is 9 inches long. And all of those three are an inch and a half in diameter. And like for a long time, a 1.5 inch by 9 inch long suppressor was considered like a full-size 30 caliber suppressor. Um, and as you go down in size, it gets a little bit louder, but the suppressor also gets shorter and, and lighter. So that's the trade-off. Um, and we make that Ultra Series in basically two, 223 caliber, 6.5 caliber, and 30 caliber. And what we found when we first started to develop the 6.5, because we had all been shooting 6.5 since you know 2000, I guess, 5 or 6 in, 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 in the form of the 260. Um, and we'd all been shooting 30 caliber suppressors on that, on that cartridge, even for years after we had the company. 
And finally, um, a lot of these PRS guys um, finally sort of like dogged us into making a 6.5 version. And what we found is that to get an actual benefit in suppression, we had to make the whole stack 6.5 specific. So like changing the end cap basically did nothing. Um, it was under the noise floor of the ability to measure the difference in suppression level. So literally, you know, for that difference, there there was no reason to do that. It would not have been a benefit at all. Um, now going from, and then people asked, well, you made a 6.5, can you make a 6 millimeter suppressor? Well, so we made one as a prototype. We threw it on my 243 and we metered it. And we found that there was literally no benefit in making even a full stack of 6 millimeter baffles over just a regular 6.5 can. So that's why we don't have a 6 millimeter option um, in that Ultra Series. And going down to 223, I mean, that's a pretty big step. So a 223, at that level, there is the benefit of having the smaller baffles again or the smaller holes again. Um, so that's kind of where we ended up in our product line for that. Um, you know, there are some what they call like multi-caliber suppressors on the market. And look, I mean, if you buy a 45 caliber aperture suppressor, um, so you can shoot it on 4570 or, uh, 45 ACP, whatever, it's going to be louder than, than other cans on a 30 caliber or on a six, five caliber. So, I mean, you can get, um, more versatility, but the expense is going to be, it's not going to be that good at any particular option. Okay. Yeah. Just the benefits of that specialization. What about, the impacts at length you mentioned five seven nine um obviously there's not only length in terms of maneuverability for a hunting situation the longer obviously is more material so it's gonna be a little bit heavier but really the performance um be it uh obviously the suppression level but also that that kind of shooting impact on um recoil and things like that kind of help us understand choosing between the two, maybe making some um, considerations in there. Like I, myself, I'm going with the seven as like a sweet spot in the middle, but when should a guy stick with the nine or maybe consider the five? How I'm sure you guys face that all the time. How do you talk guys through that? Sure. I mean, it kind of depends on your application, your weapon system and your, um, your caliber, I guess. So look, if you have a 28 inch long barrel and then you put a nine inch can on it. I mean, you're talking like almost a 35 or 36 inch long effective barrel length. That is super long. So, <laughs> I mean, no one really wants to carry that around in the field. Um, so I guess, uh, if people are going to, here are some sort of like guidelines, I would say, and there's always exceptions to the guidelines and it's really up to each person to decide what they want their trade-offs to be. So if you're going to shoot a lot, um, like target shooting, um, or you're not going to carry this thing, you know, into the woods. Um, or maybe you have, you know, you're shooting one of the bigger Magnum calibers, like a 300 wind mag or bigger. I would probably recommend the nine inch just because you'll have more suppression. Um, I would recommend the nine inch, but you know, like what you said, the seven inch is a really good compromise and the seven inch, this is like our, our third or fourth generation suppressor design now, um, the ultras and, the seven inch ultra or the, the seven inch ultra will suppress as good as most nine inch cans did or our nine inch can did 10 years ago. So in the, in the ultra series is already, I think four years old. So 
you know, for people who are okay with the level of suppression you got in like 2010 or 11 with nine inch cans, if they buy a seven inch can now, they'll be happy with ultra seven because it sounds the same, but it's a lot lighter and, you know, two inches shorter. Um, the seven inch is a really good co compromise between, it still offers a really good level of suppression. Um, but you know, it feels smaller on your gun and it is lighter a little bit. Um, and then we have the five inch and the five inch, you know, it's really a specialized application for people who really are getting it on purpose because it is louder. Every time going from the nine to the seven, you probably gain two to four decibels in sound. So in other words, the seven is two to four decibels louder than the nine inch. And it's going down to the five. It's probably three to seven DB louder than that, than that again, just because if you think about like the, the muzzle blast fan coming out of your muzzle, a lot of that's going to be, absorbed by the part that's now gone in the ultra five. Um, but that said, you know, if you can knock a 300 win mag or ultra mag or some or whatever down to the mid one forties, that is a gigantic reduction, like objectively from where it was. So if you're not comparing it to like the ultra nine, I mean, the ultra five is a fantastic option. Cause it's, I mean, there are muzzle brakes that are almost as big as the ultra five, you know, but the ultra five <clears throat> will basically make your ears, It'll make it so your ears aren't ringing for two days after you crank off some Magnum cartridge, you know, out in the field. What, uh, what should somebody think through about using suppressors in the field in a hunting situation? Um, in terms, is there anything like, you know, obviously there's basic stuff, right? Like we try to keep the, the end of our muzzle uh, free from debris and water. And that would, I'm assuming, be the case with the suppressor as well. But anything else that... You know, we're out for a week in the backcountry. We have a suppressor. Anything particular we should be aware of, pay attention to, that type of thing? Um, not really. Um, I mean, if your bore gets wet and you have to clean it out, you probably want to take the suppressor out uh, just so you don't get any, like, a patch stuck in your can. You don't want to do that, obviously. Um, but, I mean, a little moisture, like, titanium doesn't rust. Most of the steels used in the other steel cans don't rust really anyway. So... You know, if you just shake it out to make sure there's not like standing water in there, and even if there is a little bit, it's not the end of the world. Um, I just wouldn't recommend it. Um, you know, you don't want to get like mud inside your can that's going to be hard to get out. But other than that, just make sure that thing stays tight and you don't lose it. It's good to go. Okay, cool. Um, I want to recap at a high level briefly just the process for obtaining a suppressor. Um, and we could talk for an hour about that, but I just hit it from a high level. But before we do anything else um, to talk about suppressors specifically that you kind of feel like we missed or that you guys get a lot of questions on or that hunters specifically should know about the use of suppressors. Um, you should check your state laws to make sure you can hunt with them legally. Most of the states that are legal to have them, they're legal to hunt with, but there are a couple exceptions and I can't remember what they are right now. So yes. Um, Obtaining a suppressor, um, as you mentioned, has to do with the NFA. It's paperwork. It's a bit of wait to time. It's a bit of money. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons that I've delayed, and I think that a lot of people delay in pursuing this further. It's funny, I was talking with a buddy, and he actually compared it to uh, it, being a hunter. He compared it to waiting for a taxidermist, right? Like, you know you're going to have a bit of weight and a bit of money, but it doesn't keep you necessarily from doing it if that's what you want to do. Um, and so preface everything like that to say, I think 
if a weight is keeping you away from it, don't let it. But what what from a super high level, Zach, uh, what does the process look like for obtaining a suppressor? What type of weight is involved? What type of cost is involved? Sure. So you have to you you, you can only just like you can only buy a handgun from a FFL in your state of residence, you can only get an NFA item or a silencer from an NFA dealer, what they call a class three dealer in your state. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is to actually get the thing, you have to submit a packet of paperwork to the ATF. And that packet is going to contain um, like a fingerprint, a set of fingerprints, what they call a form four, um, like a passport photo and uh, 200 bucks. And that 200 bat- bucks is basically what they call a stamp tax, which is one of the things like we fought over in the revolutionary war but I'm just throwing that out there, <laughs> you know, but I mean, it's kind of funny when you get it back, they actually send you a, a $200 stamp on your form, which is what, where your $200 went to apparently. But, um, anyway, so basically it's 200 bucks. Um, you send it into ATF. They do all sorts of background checks. The criteria they use is the exact same criteria that you have for buying a handgun from a dealer. You know, it's the same questions on the 4473. It's the exact same thing. It's just that the ATF takes it, they send it to FBI, the FBI runs it, they run your fingerprints. It takes forever because the ATF has a big backlog. So expect that packet of stuff to take probably anywhere from 6 to 12 months to come back. But once it comes back, they're going to mail the approved form back to your dealer. Your dealer will say, hey, we got your form 4 back, it's approved, come get your can. So then you go there, you, you might have to fill out a 4473, and then... Um, they'll send you home with your can. Now that can is registered to you. Like people talk about gun registration in the U S the national firearms act or the, 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 um, these items, these title two firearms, which is what a silencer is. They're actually registered to you. So you can't give this to anybody. You can't really lend it to them. You can't sell it to anybody without going through ATF. Now in, in theory, the ATF could ask you to demonstrate that you still have it. I've never, ever heard of that happening, but if somebody else ends up with it in like a crime or whatever, and the ATF is going to come knocking on your door because that serial number is registered to you. Now, there is a process to get rid of them. It's basically the exact same process in reverse, but no one really ever sells their suppressors because it's just too much trouble and it's not worth it for the other person or or the person who's selling it really. Um, So basically... Your dealer would help you to fill out the paperwork. Uh, you'd mail it into ATF, and then you'd wait a while and then get it back. And then it's yours. Yeah, there's there's great resources online to to look into that. That's a good overview. And um, yeah, I'm sure there's questions on that, but there are great resources online. One thing you just brought up there made me think of a question in terms of longevity. What type of warranty do your suppressors have? And then what is involved with caring for um, a suppressor such as yours in the long term in terms of a cleaning process or just what should someone know about that? Like I mentioned, in in Europe, silencers are different than silencers here because in Europe, in a lot of places, they're an over-the-counter item. So you could buy, I mean, shoot, I think in South Africa, you can buy a plastic suppressor for like your 22 and it might wear out after, I don't know, 500 rounds or whatever, but who cares? But in the U.S., we're basically married to our suppressors. So as a result, people want one that will last forever. Our warranty is if you use it within the intended usage, like specs, it basically has a lifetime warranty 
for stuff that, you know, for damage that occurs to it. Now, obviously, if you like run over it with your truck or you like screw it on crooked or your gunsmith screwed up your threads, you know, we're not going to cover the cost of that, but we, we, we will repair it at a reasonable cost for you, whatever. Um, so the lifetime of a, of a suppressor in the U.S. should be pretty much indefinite. Um, now, granted, I, you know, I can't guarantee all the suppressors on the market are that good, but really the majority of the ones that I've seen will not be able to be worn out mechanically uh, in a person's lifetime. And then caring for one, cleaning it, uh, what is involved there, what's necessary there? Yeah, for a centerfire rifle suppressor, um, the cleaning requirements sort of fall into two categories. Um, If you don't shoot that much, like if you shoot like a regular, like let's say you're a hunter and you train up a little bit, you zero your rifle, and then you go out and shoot, you will never have to clean your suppressor. Uh, And by clean it, I mean like the internals. Um, our suppressors are fully well welded and sealed. You cannot take them apart. That's for strength and weight. The one thing you will have to clean or at least keep tabs on, 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 on any suppressor is the mounting interface. So like you don't want to get like sand or like mud like on your threads. You always want to make sure your threads are clear on both your rifle and your suppressor. But as far as cleaning the inside, if you don't shoot a whole lot, you may never have to have the inside cleaned. Now for people who are shooting a lot, like thousands of rounds per year, um, I would recommend the following, and that's when you get the suppressor new, weigh it, or you can check the manufacturer's specs on the internet or whatever to see how much it's supposed to weigh. Now, as you shoot this thing, carbon is going to build up inside the suppressor because you know all that smoke and blast that comes out afterwards is going to deposit carbon inside of your suppressor. Um, when the suppressor gets to be about two or three ounces more than the original weight, it's a good time to clean it because if you get that building up a lot, it gets harder and harder to clean it all out the longer you go. But at, at two to three ounces, it's still pretty easy. And what, what we recommend is if you fill the can up with uh, ZEP CLR, calcium lime rust remover, which you can buy at Home Depot, um, and let it sit for a day and then rinse it out again, you might have to repeat that a few times, but that stuff should get the carbon out. Now, there's a caveat, and that's safe for titanium. I, we do not recommend soaking any steel, be it stainless or not, in CLR because it will make it uh, rust eventually. Um, you can use an ultrasonic, although we found that to be not as effective as just straight up chemical means. Um, that's about it. Okay, interesting. Are your suppressors completely titanium then? Like the baffles and everything? Um, the ultras are with one caveat, and that is that if you buy one that's in direct thread format, the direct thread like part in the back is hardened 17.4 with ion bond coating, and the reason we did that is to make the threads like more durable um, and to, and to, to prevent galling issues between like titanium and stainless, which is a pretty sticky issue. Um, but other than that, they're all tie. Well, if guys um, want to learn more about your product offerings, um, what where would you send them? And then if there's any resources out there that just you found helpful to point customers to in terms of learning more about suppressors in general or about the acquisition process, anything like that in terms of resources that you'd want to make sure listeners are aware of, uh, let us know about that. Um, yeah, the website is, is uh, thunderbeastarms.com. You can just Google for Thunder Beast Arms. We're based in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um there's tons of good resources out there. Um, there's a, there's a, an association called the American 
Suppressor Association on the internet, and they're sort of like a silencer advocacy advocacy group and an industry group. So they do things like help to get silencers legal for hunting in more states. And they helped out when when actually silencers were not legal for hunting in in, in uh, sorry silencers were not legal for hunting in Wyoming maybe like a half dozen years ago, and they helped to make them legal. So they have a lot of information. They have information on what on what states they're legal in for hunting, all this sort of stuff. I'd recommend them. And really, there's so much information out there on silencers now. Um, it's so easy to find. Uh, I just say go for it. Well, thank you so much for tuning in, guys. I hope that was helpful. Uh, be sure to check out the show notes, the description for this episode and your podcast app. There's going to be a link to not only Thunderbeast, but the American Suppressor Association, and they do have some great resources. So if you're wondering, is it legal to own a suppressor where you live? Is it legal to hunt with a suppressor where you live? And much, much more about the ownership and use of suppressors, be sure to check out those links. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you for the feedback. If you have anything to share with us, send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And don't forget to tune in Monday to hear about the Exomountain Gear Pack giveaway.